millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. With progress stalled, can Ireland reopen safely to guarantee a festive Christmas? As CMO Tony Holohan warns, the R number could rise above one and there's just two weeks to get back on track. And how hopeful can we be with the progress of three possible vaccines? On our first panel, we're joined by Josefa Madigan, Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion, and by Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University. Breaking news this evening that Justice Minister Helen McEntee will answer questions on judicial appointments in the Doyle. And later we hear how Gardaí have launched an investigation as thousands of sexually explicit images of Irish women are shared online without their consent. I actually set up a campaign during the summer called Bear It All, where I was sharing images of myself in underwear and more sexy photos, basically with the point that women should be able to, you know, dress in a certain way, look a certain way without being slut-shamed or without being scared that something is going to be shared and used against them. Get in touch via Twitter with the hashtag TonightVMTV. To start tonight, Zara King, reporter with Virgin Media News, is with us with today's update on the COVID-19 figures, which when it comes to confirmed cases, seems to be worrying. Yes, Matt, the figures continue to go in the wrong direction over the last couple of days. In fact, we can take a look at the latest figures reported tonight at the NEFA press conference. We can see there are 429 new confirmed cases. And when we look at a breakdown of those new cases, we see 173 in Dublin, 44 in Cork, 26 in Donegal, 22 in Louth, 21 in Kildare, with the remaining 143 cases spread across 20 counties. So look, as it's been for a long time, COVID-19 circulating in communities right across the country. Uh, also, just taking a look at the situation in hospitals this evening, uh, we can also see there tonight that there are 290 people in hospital with COVID-19, uh, 20 admitted and 23 discharged in the last 24 hours, while in the intensive care unit, uh, there are 32 COVID patients, one admitted and two discharged. And also tonight, we're reporting four further deaths, and it comes uh, just a day after we passed that milestone of 2,000 COVID-related deaths in Ireland. And something else Tony Hulhan seemed to be worried about today at the briefing was the R number, the reproductive rate. Tell us about how that's been going in the wrong direction as well. Yeah, so we know that the R number, the goal was to get it to 0.5 by the end of level five, which we obviously know is two weeks from now. Uh, last week it was at 0.6, and in fact the atmosphere at last Thursday's press conference was one of sort of great positivity, and it's really interesting, Matt, to see how the situation here can change so quickly in the space of a week. Uh, tonight the R number stands somewhere between 0.7 and uh, 0.9, so that is also going in the wrong direction. Uh, Dr Tony Ulin was asked tonight about 
about uh, potential tensions with government as well in terms of looking ahead to the end of level five the next two weeks and what exactly is going to happen. But he said really, you know, government can't make a decision until NEFIC gives them the full picture of the public health situation and NEFIC can't really do that until we get to the end of the next two weeks. But was there any explanation as to why they think that given that we are four weeks into the level five restrictions, the numbers of confirmed cases now, instead of falling further as expected, are actually on the way back up again? Yeah, the number one reason is close contacts because they're saying that people have way more close contacts now than they have before. Now, when I say way more, uh, we're talking about people having on average more than three close contacts uh, when they go, uh, dig into those confirmed cases. Now, if we look back to the first lockdown, people in March and April sort of had around two close contacts. And you might say, what's the difference between two and three? Well, according to Professor Philip Nolan, there's actually quite a significant difference between having two or three close contacts. So potentially people may have left their guard down over the last couple of weeks. I mean, there's also been a concern for an ongoing period of time that people are quite relaxed around friends and family and people they know and that in fact they were more likely to keep their guard up around strangers but of course the reality is you can pick this virus up from anyone. Did Dr Tony Holland have anything to say tonight about the reports of strains apparently between NFET and the government over material coming into the public domain before the government makes decisions about it? Yeah as I say he was asked about that we can take a listen to what he had to say when he was asked about that. The idea that government could come to these kinds of decisions and assessments without uh, fully and totally and rigorous, rigor, rigorously examining all of the implications, uh, if we told you that that's how things worked, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it, it is right and proper. We give public health advice as, as it relates to our assessment of the transmission of the disease and what will be required to change that transmission and drive it down to lower levels. Obviously, there are a range of other considerations that government have to have. And ultimately, the decisions that government has to make, owners' decisions on behalf of all of us, uh, represents a balanced assessment across all of those. Uh, and there will rightly be uh, different perspectives on that. And did he expand further on that? Well, also, I suppose the point to make as well, Matt, that was really essential tonight was this idea of people going to work when they can actually work from home. Uh, that was something that came out up in great detail. They said that they were seeing cases of confirmed COVID-19 in workplaces where really it could have been prevented if people had worked from home. And there was a real call to employers tonight as well to do the best they can to facilitate their workers. Finally, just in relation to getting to the end of Level 5, we had heard initially that the goal was to have around 100 cases per day with an OR number of 0.5. Uh, Philip Nolan saying tonight, look, these targets are not helpful. We need to focus focus day-to-day on our own behaviour. Thank you very much for that, Zara. Well, we're joined now by Minister of State for Special Education and Inclusion, Josepha Madigan, and also by Paul Moyna, Professor of Immunology at Maynooth University. And Josepha, if I can start with you, I think most people are expecting that at the start of December we'll be coming out of Level 5 restrictions. But given those numbers that we've just been hearing, is that guaranteed? don't think anything is guaranteed at the moment uh, and it feels a little bit you know like Santi's coming and it's a bit like being on the naughty list or, or on the good list um, and I you know I, I listened to the CMO earlier on when he was talking about people not working from home as much that the traffic is busy um, and I think there's a so real... So not because there, people aren't using public transport if you can't use public transport you're well, going to go to work no, therefore you're in your well, car. Well no I think there's, there's a lot of people in, in cars you know and um, you know I, I, I think employers as well there are some employers unfortunately who are saying to, to their workers that they are to come in when they shouldn't um, so you know and also it's about reducing contact, contacts um, I think that it's only gone up by a very small percentage but it's still a percentage nonetheless and um, we have two weeks left and you know I think everybody wants 
some sort of Christmas, some sort of reasonable Christmas. And I know that the local authorities are working at ways of looking at the public realm and looking at how they can use pavements better and all of that sort of thing. But it has to be balanced with public but, but, health as well. And but, we still have over 69,000 people who, who have, have COVID in this country. Well, and we've indeed. had about 2,000 deaths. And you know. have a situation where people are talking about, will it be level three? Or some politicians are talking about, will it be level two? But should we be preparing ourselves for that if these numbers don't improve? it could remain level five throughout the month of December. It could. There's always a possibility of that. I mean, Cabinet ultimately will make the decision in relation to this. And it's not a decision that I envy in any way. I think it's a really difficult decision because everybody is really tired and, and fatigued and fed up and looking forward to a really nice Christmas, as I am. But at the same time, we want to protect public health. Um, so it's something that they're going to have to look at and balance up. And will we be learning this next week? Because I mean, there was supposed to be a four-week review. We're past the four weeks Will we be told next week or are we going to have to wait till the very last moment? Well, my understanding is that there's a cabinet meeting due on Tuesday and I think there'll be another cabinet meeting probably the end of next week. Whether or not we get the announcement at that point remains to be seen. But I mean, I would urge people listening in and I, I know we're all tired of listening to the same uh, sort of instructions from the government uh, and from ENFIT, but we really have to ask people just to, just to bear with us and to do the best for the next two weeks because we're nearly there to okay. get a little bit of leeway. Paul Moyle, despite the social pressure to open up for the month of December, the economic pressure to do so, could it be that the public health advice is going to be, because of the way the numbers are going, we're going to have to stick at level five? I guess, Matt, it depends how cautious NEFET is going to be and up until now they've been extremely cautious. Um, when I look in terms of the benefit we've got for from level five, I, I think, to be honest, it's been quite limited. I think when you look at that reversal of the upward tra trajectory and the reversal of that, it was clear to see that that happened actually before the effects of level five could come into uh, effect. So... In terms of, I think that's okay if level five doesn't cost you much, but the costs and risks are enormous. But there's a lot of possibility that things would have been an awful lot worse if we hadn't gone to level five. If you look at the way the numbers are at their highest ever daily rate in the United States, the numbers are exploding throughout continental Europe. They've gone past 50,000 deaths in Britain. Would that not suggest that, okay, we might be disappointed, but if we hadn't gone to level five, things would be a damn sight worse? Well, if you look at that downward trend again with the impact of level five, level five made very little difference to that downward trajectory. So I would argue that, well, you know, the restrictions that were in place before level five, that, and one of the advantages is actually when NEFA did recommend to go from level two to level five, one of the advantages, I think, of delaying that by a couple of weeks, it then became apparent that that reversal of the upward tra trajectory was due to restrictions prior to introduction of level five. Just one point as well um, that I think is, is often missed, you know, and obviously I'm, I'm not at Cabinet, but, I, you know, it, I would imagine, and in fact, I, I'd be very sure of the fact that government would like to reopen, I mean, purely on an economic basis. I mean, if you think about the fact that the six weeks of, of level five is costing two billion, you know, between the pandemic unemployment payment and the employment wage subsidy scheme um, and the Chris uh, scheme. So, you know, it's in the interests of the government to want to try to uh, open up and obviously for retailers and, and all of that. But, you know, we'll have to, it remains to be seen. I think that, I think we can take what the CMO said as a bit of a warning there that yeah, we just need to really be careful over the next couple of isn't weeks. Isn't there a case though that we've been told not to go places, to stay at home and yet the household outbreaks have doubled in more than a week and 75% of the new cases have been attributed to households. Would that not suggest we might be better off out in the open air rather than sticking at home. 
Well, you're not supposed to have anybody in the house anyway, uh, as it is, you know. And I think there were over 900 cases in a week, uh, which which came directly from, from households. But maybe people are going to people's houses because but, you know, they need the human contact. They well, can't they, they, meet in pubs they, and restaurants. They can go outside, you know, to the park. Um, I know people meet meet each other in the park or they go for a takeaway coffee and they walk around. But even at that, the, the CMO was asking us to limit our contacts. Um, and I know it's really difficult, but I think... I think it's worth it when, when we look at Christmas and we say to ourselves, we want a little bit of a Christmas, so at least you could have maybe another family into your household for your Christmas dinner. Um, and certainly people who are living on their own, you know, it's going to be very important that they're looked after from a mental health perspective as well. Paul, as immunologist, why do you think the numbers have stalled and started going back up? I think certainly if you look at the comparison, the narrative has been to compare with the numbers that we achieved back in the summer. But November is very, very different from June. And the more you look at this virus now, the more shows signs of seasonality. And it is a coronavirus, and this, this is what coronaviruses do, to transmit better during these winter months. And that's due to a variety of reasons, you know, in terms of cold temperatures, the virus is probably more stable. But also humidity is a big um, environmental factor. Uh, dry air, it transmits better. Really good research coming out now showing our respiratory systems find it more difficult to clear viruses in dry air. So even simple messages, you know, in terms of, you know, increasing humidity in the homes, as you said, Matt, most of the, of the transmission now is taking place in households. Um, people are spending more time inside. I think there needs to be more education. There seems to be so, absolute... What do people do? Do they throw open all the windows? Do they go out, even if it is cold so, and wet, into the with the fresh air? Something simple, Matt, you know, and very cheap to buy, you know, for example, carbon dioxide monitors, that will tell you when you need to ventilate the rooms. You know, humidity meters, and even as something simple as having a bowl of water, you know, in, in rooms and things like that. So it's very simple things, but I think that's why we need you know, more wider expertise. We have a very narrow stream of expertise. We need to look at these uh, solutions. Uh, and I think something like that would help and give us... But Paul, uh, would that then suggest that there is going to be a real danger at Christmas time, that if people do start gathering all together in their kitchens or in their living rooms or whatever, even if there's only one other family comes to visit, that that might actually be extremely dangerous, more dangerous, the restaurateurs say, than actually being in a socially distanced and organised pub or restaurant? I think there's always going to be risk, I think, even in terms of lifting the restrictions. But again, you have to look in terms of if you don't lift the restrictions, what the costs and risks are going to be. And I think they're, they're enormous. And I'm somewhat reassured in terms of seeing that reversal of the upward trajectory before the effects of level five could have come, in, come into play. So we have to get the R number down um, and we have to get the trajectory of cases down as well. Um, and one thing that, that I think the Cabinet will consider is, is regional county-based approach, um, which is which has been done in other countries. They may well do that in this instance. So um, I think they'll have, have a lot of criteria that they're need to go, going to have to go through quite thoroughly. Um, so you just explain what you mean by that. That way we did, we had Dublin and Donegal previously at level three yeah. plus and the rest of the country at yeah. three, that there might be different yeah, criteria there, there, there for There may well countries. be. They've certainly said that it's under consideration. So but, but I think as well, the, the aim to try to get back to summer levels, another factor is, you know, schools are open now. Now, schools, there is some transmission, thankfully, and I think it's the right decision to have schools open. But there's a number of factors, I think, that makes it more difficult to get down to the numbers that we had during the summer. And, and I think we need to be realistic about that. And that's mainly the time of year, is it, and the weather? I, th I think that's a major contribution, man. I think seasonality is a major contribution. What about people coming into the country from overseas and also people maybe leaving for Christmas and coming back afterwards? Yeah, again, that's an increased uh, risk. 
Should think, we prevent it happening? Well, I think people are going to do that anyway. I, I think, Matt, if you look at some of the countries who have been very successful early on, they moved very fast and they basically closed their borders and they implemented actually central quarantine where people came in and they were actually put and monitored in hotels. Um, now, we decided not to do that and I think it's too late to do that now. So I think Why what we need to late? do... Why is it too late? Is it not better late than never? Well, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I think in terms of, you know, we have a shared border as well. Um, so I think you have to face the reality and then try to deal with that reality and certainly in terms of augmenting and putting testing around uh, Yeah, and what travel. about the testing? Now, where do you stand on this PCR testing, antigen testing, all these things that might be very confusing to lay people? How well do you think do they do and how quickly can they get the desired results? I think we should be expanding, you know, our use and, you know, the different methodologies that are out there to test. So far, we've concentrated exclusively on PCR, really good test, very sensitive, very specific. But there are other more rapid forms of testing. I think we should be uh, using them, using them in situations where currently we're not testing at all. You know, there have been uh, suggestions that, OK, they're not as sensitive, but they're not as sensitive, but they may pick up 70% of the cases if we begin to test in areas where currently we're not testing, surely you're picking up more cases. False positives, we can easily overcome that because we can do a PCR and that will knock out all of the false positives. So there's ways around this. And I, I think we've just been too slow to adopt uh, the use of these uh, rapid tests. And what's more, even in terms of cost, you know, they're cheaper. So I think we really need to look at that. We Why need do to we miss that, that opportunity, Josephus? It's not like we haven't had enough time to reach that decision. Mm. Well, first of all, the, the PCR test that, that you alluded to is, is the only test that's, that's accepted, actually, um, by the government. But we have the EU traffic light system, as you know, and Ireland is actually now in the orange zone. I think the Canary Islands is the only other place in the orange zone. The only place that has a green light, as far as I can see, is, is Greenland. Um, and the, the PCR test, if somebody is arriving um, or, or, or travelling uh, from abroad into Ireland from an EU country, if they're in an orange zone and they do a PCR test three days before they, they leave or before they depart to Ireland um, and that's negative, they, they don't have to, they're exempted from the 14 day, the four, 14 day restrictions. And for a red zone, uh, if they come into the country and they test negative after five days after, within five days of arriving, they're also excluded. They're, they're all, they all have an exemption. And it's the same with, with, with those five days with, that they will go with for the their essential test. workers. Yeah, but it's only five days as, as opposed to 14. And that'll come in on the 29th of November. That's not actually exactly in yet. Um, and, you know, but, with sorry, third why countries. Are you confident that's going to work when the 14 day self isolation, according to anecdotal evidence, has been ignored yeah, by anecdotal loads of people. evidence is only anecdotal evidence. Like, but give it's, us it's the a passenger, evidence that people a, are actually honouring what they're supposed to do. It's a passenger locator form, which is now in, in, in an E form, if you like. Um, and, you know, people have been have been found out who have lied on the form, um, but the majority of people do abide by it, and there are fines and penalties and sanctions that people don't. Yeah, just, just in terms, again, going back to the rapid testing, like if you look at other examples, for example, Slovakia, they went down a mass testing route using these rapid antigen uh, tests. So they tested the population over um, two weekends. Um, that halved on numbers, you know, within two weeks. So I think we should be looking at alternatives to that, for example, to lockdown, where things that are less costly, more efficient. I think we should be looking at the use of these. And finally, briefly, as an immunologist, how excited are you by the potential of now maybe three vaccines? Yeah, I think it's really, really good news, uh, Matt. Obviously, you know, there is a caveat there in terms of we, we have to see the data. It, it, they need to be published. But really, really important. I think it's going to make a big change and hopefully, you know, next, 
by Very next good. summer, we're going to see a big effect. Very good. We have to leave it there for now. Our thanks to Professor Paul Moyna. Minister of State Josepha Madigan is staying with us. And after the break, we'll ask, can the government find a clear pathway to Christmas to give people hope for that period? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Minister of State Josepha Madigan remains with us, but we're also joined by Labour TD Aon O'Reardon. And news tonight that the Justice Minister Helen McEntee has bowed to pressure from the opposition and will go to the Doyle and answer questions about the controversial circumstances of the appointment of Seamus Wolfe to the Supreme Court. So are you happy with that now that you're getting places? No, it's nonsense. It's an absolute nonsense. These are oral questions that she has to take anyway. She has just asked that her oral questions that she would be expected to take place anyway would be put forward a little bit. And the oral questions have to be put down four days in advance. It's I mean, not sorry, oral questions have to be oral written questions first, to the minister. They? they are written questions that are given to the minister's office four days in advance, which she then will reply. And are you allowed to ask follow-up questions based on her answer? You get about a minute and sometimes less than that to ask a, fo a follow-up question of the submitted question that you have asked. So this is not mm -hmm. what the, this is not what. Uh, opposition we're asking will, for. Will that not do the job? Are you no, not going to be won't. able to get the answers let's, you need from doing that? Let's be quite clear here what we're asking uh, for the Minister to do. And we've had all sorts of excuses as to why it couldn't happen. This nonsense about separation of powers and this, uh, the, these other excuses today about going down rabbit holes of, of bringing in people's personalities and all this sort of nonsense. What has happened today is a complete and utter fudge. Earlier today we were told that she was actually going to switch her oral questions at a later date. Uh, so that we will push it later into December, hopefully that the con controversy will be over from the government's point of view. Now we hear this evening, just before the nine o'clock news, uh, that she's now willing to come in. But I think reviewers need to realise that ministers do oral questions as part of their constitutional duty to the House. And you have to submit these oral questions four days in advance. This is not a special once-off question and answer session which the opposition have demanded. And clearly... It is not what we've demanded because there are so many holes in the story that the government are presenting that they wouldn't be able to trust or have confidence in the minister 
to present a story that is watertight and that goes with the narrative that the government are trying to spin for the last number of what days. What are you scared of? No, I mean, to, 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 to use Aidan's uh, word, nonsense, I mean, that that's, with respect, uh, utter nonsense uh, in my view. Uh, I mean, because, I, because that. I'll explain it, because it, because it's a very reasonable approach, uh, what Minister McEntee is doing. Um, it's going she, to do it she, anyway. It, All questions you, are done anyway. Aidan, with respect, I didn't interrupt you, OK? So she, she, she's going to answer questions. Um, so they, she has said that you can, you can ask any question or any member of the opposition, as you know with parliamentary questions, you're a junior minister yourself, you know how it works. So she, you can submit a, a, a question and she will answer the questions that, that come in. So she's trying to save time. And the difficulty that we have, that the government has with the full debate, is the grave concerns we have about the separation of powers, whether Aidan likes to hear it that's or doesn't like to hear it. Independent and also, academic. Say also, that's nonsense. No, Dr. Laura academics differ. There is not and one doctors legal. differ. And sorry, as a lawyers differ as well. And there will be lawyers that will differ with me. But, th but that's just the way it is. And to me, the crux of this is Article 2843, which says very clearly that it is at the sole discretion of the government who they appoint as, uh, as a Supreme Court judge or any judge. So that, that is the reality. And I, I accept the process, the very clear process that Minister McEntee has outlined, which she did already in a, in a statement to the committee. She is prepared now to, to answer she questions. Take, she didn't take it questions is a reality the that the, the opposition are never going to be happy because no, they just want it. to elongate this and let it go on and no. on and on. So they get more airtime. So they're going to un try and undermine the government. There is nothing to they see here. To respond to I, look, uh, I, I would have thought that you know, government spokespeople couldn't have you know, belittled themselves more over the, over the Leo uh, leak story and now we have a similar situation with this. What we are being led to believe is that a Minister for Justice three weeks in the job, three weeks in the job, who has never sat a cabinet before, had four names, selected one, and didn't tell the tarnished sorry, oh, no, sorry, sorry, again, I, 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 I know I, you don't like interrupting. Yeah. I know you don't like, like interrupting, so, so <laughs> let me just finish the story here, which we, we have been told. Didn't tell the tarnished that you knew, knew, knew nothing about it uh, and didn't tell the, the, the Taoiseach uh, or uh, the, the, the leader of, of the Green Party either. There are three separate lists. There is the jab process, there is a list of, of judges who are interested in the post, and there's a list of possible judges who haven't expressed interest. The idea that jab, uh, which has been elevated by Fine Gael as being the only process or the only uh, 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 way of, of selecting somebody it, is a nonsense, because what jab do is just say that this person is, a, is appointable. Appointable. So it, there, are, there, are, there is any amount of inconsistency what's been told. The, the Tarnish's performance today uh, was really stretched, uh, you know, credibility to a large degree. But what we have asked is for, and this is supposed to be the, the party of transparency, what we have asked is for the minister to come, to come forward, to come in front, to come, no, hold on, to come in front of the doll and to answer questions in a questions and answer format. What she has done tonight, to be honest, is... is is totally disingenuous because these are because these are oral questions with which a minister is required to answer anyway and you have to put the questions four days in advance. We've made that point and you wouldn't accept it if you were in opposition. If you were in opposition you wouldn't accept it. And actually when Micheál Martin when Micheál Martin was in opposition he said that the appointment of Moira Whelan as as 
uh, if, to, if, to the if you Court could of Appeal. Down a little you bit and actually fine. allow me respond um, to, to, to the allegations that you're making. Um, you know, because I, I think this is very serious, some of the things that, that you're alleging um, that have happened or haven't happened. Like, th this process started when the Chief Justice wrote to the former Minister for Justice, uh, Flanagan, as you know, um, to, to, because there was a, a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And the JAB, JAB recommended um, Seamus Wood. They don't recommend. Appointed, they sorry, don't rec no, they sorry, don't recommend. With, if I can finish, Aidan, they do, right? But they don't it, recommend. But, but, sorry, if I can finish. The government but you're saying something that's not I true. Aidan, sorry, please, Aidan, please. please. Like, the, the government actually doesn't have to take recommendation from JAB in the first instance. They also don't have to take um, an eligible judge. They also, who, who's eligible for promotion, they also don't have to take or appoint no, sorry, if I can finish, said, sorry, somebody no, who, 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 declares a, who declares an interest. They, they can actually appoint whoever they but like, and they that goes know? back to Article 2843. Yes, but the point remains did they know about the availability of the other judges? If you look at the Cabinet Handbook, Matt, of that? if you look at the Cabinet Handbook, what it says very clearly in that is that if there's a proposal going to be made to, to Cabinet to appoint somebody to the bench, then the leaders of the parties must be informed, the Tornishta, the Taoiseach and the Minister of Finance. And that was done. And a memo to government was brought on the 15th of July by Minister McEntee to Cabinet. And, and I, sorry, I, I accept that the process was, was, was adhered to 100%. And I think that Minister McEntee, when she goes into the Dáil and answers the written questions that you can take your time over and deliberate or how you want to structure it, and you do have adequate time in the Dáil for responses, twice actually, over about a 10-minute period for each parliamentary question. And with, 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 with the amount of time that you have, it's about two hours or an hour and a half. So it's quite a considerable time that she's giving. And that is accountability. And that is transparency in my book. And I, I wouldn't be speaking here on national television if I didn't actually agree uh, with, with what has been done. And I think just because the person may have been an AG, it's not unprecedented. We have Cavolo Dolly, who was one of the youngest AGs ever appointed to the Supreme Court. There have been other Attorney Generals. It's within the gift of the government to appoint whoever they choose. And whether you like it or not, that is the point. Aeon? There have been about three, I think, Supreme Court judges that have come from the jab process before. It's very unusual. And what the, you're... The, yeah, unusual or not, it, it, it's not, there's no, not, could you leave absolutely nothing wrong with it. Could you his opportunity, please? It's extremely unusual. You should know it's extremely unusual. And again, we're expected to believe that a, that a minister uh, three weeks into the job, who has never sat a cabinet before, was the one who solely made uh, this decision by herself without recourse to anybody she's else. She's a minister and for justice, Adolm, with respect. So if she's yeah. entitled to okay, make that well, decision. She's entitled to make that decision. Yeah, if I'm, the Attorney General had names of judges who were interested, who would the Attorney General tell and why if the Minister for Justice knew those names would she have disregarded those names and go for the person who was I don't know the I don't know General? but we, we would love to answer these questions and, and it's only tonight that she has decided I, that, uh, that, that it's remarkable how you seem to have your own rules about interrupting and about over speaking <laughs> and then when it comes anything. to somebody else uh, there are different said, rules well, I haven't said anything much. I know you're very upset no no I am well, that's no, okay I tell you, no but, I'll tell you what I'm know, upset I, about I, I think you're you, no, she has she's, she's no, making reasons well, if I been, uh, I'm allowed to finish my in fairness she's going into the doll and she will answer questions no what I'm upset about is the twisting of the truth which has gone on from Finnegan over the last number of months and a number of issues the fact that you have a difficulty in having proper parliamentary 
procedure. The fact that you're now pretending that this is proper uh, oversight and questioning answering when it isn't. The, the, and the, also the, the fact, Constitution and uh, also the delineates fact, the separation and also the of powers. That you have a complete inability to let anybody else speak the, and have an opinion when, the, when, the when it's a serious issue at, uh, at stake. And the, and the last thing I'll say the Taoiseach, who wasn't informed of these extra names, was the very person who said, and this is what I was trying to say, but you wouldn't let me speak earlier, was the very person who said that Maura Whelan's appointment as from AG to the Court of Appeal, which is which not in any way... And did you object to Maura Whelan's Sorry, uh, if you just let me finish my, my, my point. Did you, though? It was a Fine Gael appointment. When, uh, I'm that, just wondering, did you no, object Sorry, Michal Martin said that that stank. No, he didn't. He did. He said it stinks. Yeah. Anyway, that's in the past. And Maura oh, Whelan see, is a very this, efficient wait, judge on the on, Court you, of you Appeal. Um, you and I don't think it's very dangerous that we're even <laughs> talking about the merits or demerits it's of remarkable. judges. No, it isn't. It is uh, no, no, it's 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 remarkable. Ah, no, I don't accept that. This is exactly why we can't have a full debate. Isn't it remarkable that Josefa Madigan mentions Carol O'Dolig, yet something that happened four years ago is in the past? Thank you very much for that, Labour TD. Eona Reardon and Minister of State Josefa Madigan who will be staying with us because after the break we'll be asking if students are bearing too much of the blame for flouting restrictions and we hear how Gardaí have launched an investigation as thousands of sexually explicit images are allegedly sh shared online without their consent. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back. Alexandra Ryan of Goss.ie is with us now to discuss the story that emerged today about Gardaí looking into allegations that large numbers of images of women were shared online without their consent. Image-based sexual abuse is not currently an offence in Ireland. Alexandra, what can you tell us about this issue that was discussed at length in the Dáil earlier? <laughs> Yes, it's a very frustrating issue, I think, for anyone who's been following this over the last couple of years. About 18 months ago, a bill was actually proposed and was accepted by the doll, specifically focused on making revenge porn illegal in Ireland. And over the last 18 months, it was actually never put into law. So this is something I followed up on because I was very interested in this. And I checked with the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, actually only two weeks ago, what was happening with the bill? Why hasn't it gone through? Is it coming through? And she told me that it will be 100% through before the end of the year and that in the first week of December, it's going to be brought to the doll. And included in that legislation is not just revenge porn itself, i.e. sharing images without people's consent, but also online harassment, online bullying. There's actually quite a big bill on its way. So for anyone today 
feeling very frustrated and feeling very angry. The good news is it is coming. But the question is, is it too little, too late? If this had been passed 18 months ago, think of all the people that would be getting justice now today because out of what happened today, the 140,000 images, we've heard that some of the images may be of women under the age of 18. Anyone who uploaded or shared those, of course, that's a criminal offence. We'll see some justice there. But what about all the other women who had their photos stolen, who feel violated? Even if this bill comes through, no one will be able to be prosecuted as it will be past tense. So it wasn't a crime when it was done. How do these photographs become available to be shared? And how often do you get it wrongfully said that you know, the victims are in some way responsible uh, for the photographs, even if they're not the ones who chose to share them? Yeah, I think that's one of the most difficult things when it comes to revenge porn and something I'm passionate about. I actually set up a campaign during the summer called Bear It All, where I was sharing images of myself in underwear, more sexy photos, basically with the point that women should be able to, you know, dress in a certain way, look a certain way without being slut shamed or without being scared that something is going to be shared and used against them. And I think the word revenge porn is quite dangerous because revenge insinuates that something else happened before, that it's a retaliation. At the end, of the day it's abuse so how these images basically came to being it's it's mixed there's a lot of different ways but it's a mixture of images that were stolen from only fans which is a subscriber only platform where men and women can go on and pay to view images and videos of women a lot of them are sexually explicit. Some images were stolen from private social media accounts. And then on top of that, there's claims that some of the photos are of women while they were asleep. So they've absolutely no idea these photos exist. And then lastly, there's a few images and photos that maybe a woman might have sent to their partner while they were together. They may no longer be together now and they have been shared. And they were basically put in this huge file on a forum that's now been taken down, but it was on a forum where you had to be invited to be a part of this forum. So I mean, that's it's very sketchy in the first place, the fact that these forms are allowed, but they are. Once they were contacted by the guards, they took down the thread that included these videos and photos. But it's too late. They're, they've been shared somewhere else. They're on porn websites now. There are women today that are literally terrified that this is going to follow them around forever. And you used, just briefly to finish, Alexandra, on Twitter today, used the words guilt, shame, overwhelming depression. These are the emotions that are often felt by the unwitting victims of this crime. Definitely. I think that's something that's important to remember. I think when people share these videos or forward them on to their mates, they don't understand the effect it's going to have on women or equally to men. At the end of the day, when an image is shared or when you're doing something intimate with a partner, it's not to be shared with the world. And so many women who are victims of revenge porn, especially in Ireland, there's so many stories out there. They are traumatized. They're always worried that this is going to come back to bite them. They're concerned that the videos, the photos might have been sent to family members, to work colleagues. Colleagues. They're worried they're going to lose their job, that they're going to be slut-shamed because of what's out there. So there's so many consequences to this. And I just can't wait for the day that this is actually a crime and women and men can be, feel safer in this country. Alexandra Ryan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us on The Tonight Show. The Minister of State, Josepha Madigan, is still with us. We're also joined by Alison Keating, Chartered Psychologist. But if I can go to you in this topic, did I get right there that we actually have a bill passed by the Doyle to outlaw this, but it actually hasn't been enacted 18 months later? Yeah, sometimes bills can get to the first stage and then it can take a number of months uh, to, to actually 
become legislation because there's a number of stages it has to go through. It's like, for example, I had a contempt of court bill, which still hasn't gone through either. Um, but I think, I so think min the Minister for Justice um, has said that she intends to do it by the end of the year, which is really important. And But this is a prime example, Matt, of, of legislation trying to keep... Uh, you know, at the same pace as, te as, as technology, because it's constantly evolving all of the time. Um, and, you know, things like that, where, you know, images are shared uh, on different platforms, you know, we have to find a way of, of bringing in something like takedown suppression orders that they have in New Zealand um, or other measures like that, because it, it's, it's really difficult. Um, and and it, it, it's almost a form of blackmail, really, uh, against women primarily. Of course, it can happen to men as well. Um, but I'm really uh, glad that the Minister for Justice has said she's going to look at What it. would you say to the people who engage in this practice and others then who also have gone online even today making pretty obnoxious comments almost in support of the people who've done that? Mm. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a hate crime, really, you know, and um, like we have, a, there's a huge body of work to be done, as I said, to progress this and, and to, to bring legislation up into the 21st century because we're, we're way behind. Um, but every country is struggling with this. And we have new platforms every day, like like TikTok is a new one and, and Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, Twitter and Instagram. And, it, you know, in a, in a few years' time, there'll be something else. So we just, we have to, and social media companies as well have to take some responsibility. I mean, the days of self-regulation are absolutely over in, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, we're joined now via Skype by UCC student Harry McCann because we want to move to but not a subject relevant to younger people. Harry, is the public being too quick to point the finger at students at present for the increased number of COVID-19 cases in households? Hi, Matt. Yeah, I, I think most definitely students have been the scapegoat for far too long now. Um, since the very beginning of the pandemic, we pointed fingers at students. And it's very easy to do so because of the fact that when we look in the media and we look in politics, there's very few young people there to defend themselves. So when something goes wrong, we point the finger at 18 or 19-year-olds who haven't actually done anything and have been proven not to have done or have been involved or the cause of this huge surge of cases. So I think young people have got a very tough time. And I'm glad to see over the last few weeks, Tony Houlihan, the Taoiseach and various other ministers have highlighted that fact that actually young people aren't to blame here. They're very much just living their lives day to day. It's a very social activity. And that's just the way it's been, unfortunately. But I think, yeah, we've definitely been too harsh on young people. OK, but there's been a lot of publicity earlier in the year about student house parties during the first lockdown. When we get to December and when the students are looking at the break at the end of the term, do you think are we likely to be getting more of these stories? I don't think so. I think, look, there was a minority of people who were acting the fool and there was a minority of people who were unfortunately not following guidelines. But the same can be said for the people on St. William Street during the week. They weren't teenagers. They weren't young people. They were in their 30s and 40s. They were adults who were acting against guidelines and restrictions. The same can be said for every cohort, you know. Unfortunately, there's going to be the small minority in society who are going to break those restrictions and guidelines. The best we can do is follow them. I don't think there's any concern for the fact that young people aren't going to adhere to them when the break comes. I think everybody's going to struggle come Christmas time. But I think what will happen again is the same thing that happened before, which is the headlines will read that young people are causing a surge, when in fact it's not the case. It's just a very easy cohort to pick on. Um, and it's just the unfortunate case. But it's, it's always the same. Young people are the scapegoats for, for an awful lot of problems. And Harry, you're a third-year student now at UCC. You're staying down the student accommodation. While it may be tough for you, how hard is it for the first-years many of whom still haven't met the people that they're due to be in class with for the next three to four years. 
Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. The transition from school to college is tough as it is in normal circumstances when you're allowed to go to lectures, when you're allowed to interact with people. And I know there's been a lot of joking and laughing about this idea that young people are missing out on the shift or the pub crawls or whatever it might be. But they're important milestones and they're important passages and rites of passage. And I think while we may laugh and joke about the idea that going out and getting the shift is, is no big deal, at one stage it was the biggest deal in everybody's life. It was the most important thing for them. And I think for any student who's started college, it's tough. Josefa Madigan just got it inside a camera and said, is that what they call it, the shift? Come on, Josefa. The shift. Shift, <laughs> Alison, yeah, but not the shift. Alison, <laughs> is this, are young people being unfairly stigmatised, perhaps getting too much of the blame for the spread of the illness, when actually, ironically, they are suffering from the loss of income, loss of social life, uh, at a time when they're not actually particularly susceptible maybe themselves to the illness? And... And even the, before that, they had to go through the leaving cert and, and all the wait in between that. There's such unique challenges for young people. And I do think that they get scapegoated. And, you know, we look at vulnerable groups and cohorts in society at the moment and we're, we're protecting our, our older society where we're, we're, the children are being minded. But it, it seems interesting that this group are vulnerable to mental health concerns pre-COVID. So I'm, I, I, I'm sometimes disheartened when we see the finger being pointed when, you know, we all are in this together collectively. What, what is it that we can actually do to support all different groups of society and perhaps to be aware of the narrative that does actually so surround young people. what can we do to help those who have just passed out of their teens and particularly into their 20s who are maybe struggling a little bit with their non-working lives or their college lives at present? I think just to be mindful and to support and to really tune into what they're actually saying. You know, um, I mean, it's interesting. We would have at times when we would have said that we didn't want the teenagers in their bedrooms on their phones all the time. But now they actually might be on Zoom, you know, doing college from home. And the isolation is is quite um, difficult, I think, to deal with mentally. And, you know, I think it is interesting that we, we do have a great sense of humour in Ireland, but perhaps these are serious, you know, issues because, you know, as emerging adults, it is such an important part, even academically and socially, to be in those situations. And I would imagine it's so much harder to actually learn, even, you know, if you're at home, you might just pick up your phone. And I just think we have to support younger people um, in ways we can do it within the home, within the community, and definitely to kind of seek out um, any help or support that are coming to the universities as well. Harry, what are you missing out on most other than the shift? <laughs> other than the shift, I think it's just general social interaction, Matt, to be honest. Um, it's been incredibly difficult. Um, I spend most of my day in this apartment. We put up the Christmas tree early, as you can see. And it's a bit of a joke and a laugh, but to be honest, it's a, it's a huge part of trying to keep the morale up around here. Um, I see mostly the same three people every day. There's COVID cases in the apartment block, so we're not leaving as much as we should be, not seeing as many people. And college is difficult. It's my final year of college. You know, the, the workload has increased and the only interaction I have with my lecturers is via Zoom. So there's, there's, there's plenty of challenges, but I think... Alison's completely right, you know, students are financially crippled at the moment. Youth unemployment is higher than it's been in a very long time. And unfortunately, students just aren't getting that support. We have the highest college fees in the EU, and we're throwing in 250 euros here and there as if that's going to support students. There's a mental health crisis in this country long before COVID. Students are struggling very, very much. And I think, unfortunately, we're just not giving them the attention that they need. And I think there needs to be more done. Josie, for that 250 euro grant, I mean, that's just a fraction of the three grand in student fees. It's just a token gesture. 
Yeah, no, but I think it's an acknowledgement of, of the difficulties um, that they're going through, you know, and it's €250 Euro for, for, for students on the SUSE grant um, and there's a, a credit note then for students that aren't. Um, but, you know, Harry speaks and always does very eloquently about the difficulties that students are facing. But, you know, um, there is €3 million going into to wellbeing and mental health facilities, particularly for third-level students. So there's about a, a billion going into mental health for the whole of 2021. But, I mean, I remember my Trinity College days, and they are the best days of your life, and it's, it is very difficult for, for, and, for and students. And young adults are more susceptible to the illness than secondary school students and primary school pupils. But should it be the case that more should be done to try and get them back onto campus rather than leaving them at home? It's just a very difficult one to answer because, you know, we, we are following the guidelines and, and, you know, I suppose it is difficult when you see that the children are actually in school. So it begs the question, why not um, the students? But I think we're in such, um, such a difficult time and we, that we can't have definitive answers with this. Um, but I think what we have to do is to look at this from a mental health perspective and, and ask yourself, what can I do myself? What help can I get from my family, from my community, from from my university, and to seek out those those any help that's available to you? You know, telehealth is available, and um, what what supports are available within? Are the younger people actually better than the previous generations and looking to talk, seeking out help? I think you know it's interesting when that's what I'm saying about the neg the narrative is quite negative towards young people, and we kind of be, be dismissive and say oh they're snowflakes because they actually have high emotional intelligence, and it's we need to tune into the emotions, actually listen to what maybe they could actually teach us um, a lot more, and, and we need to allow them the space to actually express what's going on and to support them as we do other cohorts in society. Very briefly back to you, Harry. Do you feel younger people are being given the support that is necessary? I think the government have done a lot. I think there's been a lot of sports at the university, but I think we're reacting to something that's been a problem for a very long time. We've had a mental crisis here for a long time. And I think from a mental health perspective, students need as much support as possible. So we can't just keep trying to put a plaster over a wound that requires stitches. We need to start investing properly over time to make sure that they get that support and we don't have bigger issues over time. Thank you very much, Harry, for joining us. That is all we have time for tonight. My thanks to Harry McCann, Josepha Madigan and Alison Keating. I'll be back on the radio tomorrow afternoon to Today FM, back here next Tuesday night after another edition of I'm a Celebrity. So we'll be at the later time of 10.20 again next Tuesday. For now, thanks for watching. Stay safe and have a very good night.